right. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining. I'm JJ Walsh in Hiroshima. This is Seek Sustainable Japan. Thank you so much for joining today. Uh, today, I have the pleasure of talking with educator, author, editor, John Rukinski. Thank you so much for joining today. Okay, thank you. I'm uh, very happy to be here. And uh, it's not raining, so that's good. I can uh, be a little happier than I would be usually this season. So should go well. Nice. Now we have so many things to talk about. Uh, you have done this beautiful book, uh, edited stories, a passion for Japan, 30 different insiders, long-term international residents in Japan, many of whom I have had the pleasure of interviewing on this TV, on this talk show series. Um, so how did this project get started? How did you decide I want to do a collection of passion for Japan stories? Right. Um, so do you want the the short version or the long version, the, the Ramones version or the Grateful Dead version, I would say, uh, or somewhere in the middle? Can I? Yeah, somewhere in the middle. Go ahead. Yeah, okay. Uh, it's really, it goes back to three things. And um, one was um, I did a series of textbooks with uh, Alice Gordenker. Um, has she been on your show as well? Okay, add her to the list. Uh, amazing woman um so we did this book uh working in japan through uh cengage and the idea here was to interview uh people obviously working in japan and you know that that really inspired me that um you know i, I kind of stay in this english teaching bubble so it was really eye-opening to see all these you know, people, you know, who are following different careers in Japan. And uh, it was it was quite fascinating. So I, I kind of just kept that in my brain, you know, what the next project could be. And I thought, you know, instead of, you know, working, uh, how about, you know, passion or or what we do outside of work? Because we know uh, Japan certainly needs more of that. Um, so that was one inspiration, just keeping, you know, wanting to do more with this idea. And a second, another one was just the, um, you know, I, I, I'm a anthology uh, collection junkie. Um, you know, every year I get the best American sports writing, travel writing, uh, nonfiction writing. So, and, and the great thing about these is, you know, you always, um, you always get turned on to new authors um, and different voices and, and topics you thought you might've had no interest in um, just because the, the way of telling the story, the writing is so good. Um, so I, I felt a bit of a lack of that in, in uh, as a long-term resident here, I want to read all these English books about Japan and hear other perspectives. And there are so many great ones, but I, I couldn't really find many anthologies. So I, I really wanted to bring together, um, you know, a group of different authors. And so finally, you know, just thinking, for years, you know, what what could my theme be? And it really started with a lot of people I knew. And, you know, you think of the people like me in Japan who have been here uh, forever. And, um, you know, they can still be quite divided where, you know, some just are really still frustrated, um, you know, rant a lot, can't really accept the culture, but, but they're just still kind of here. But then you get these real, you know, positive people that, that and I, I was kind of looking for what what it was that kind of separated these. And then one theme I came up with is, you know, maybe maybe it's our passion or, you know, a, 
stronger Japanese term, you know, ikigai, you know, why we get up in the morning. So I, I really just started with a few friends I knew, um, acquaintances I knew who had these, you know, strong passions that I felt really helped them live smoothly, live comfortably here in Japan, because it's certainly not easy. And I just reached out to a few people and and they were all, in, you know, very enthusiastic, said yes right away. So it really just expanded from there, thinking like, you know, there, there must be more people out there. And so I was really excited just to put this out there and, and see what response I got. And yeah, I was overwhelmed with the response. And and this book we have now, which you just held up, you see it's a it's a big book. And I'll be honest, much, much bigger than I initially anticipated and uh but that's that's completely a good thing so yeah uh, your story of how this came about sounds so similar to how uh seek sustainable japan started uh in 2020 as kind of corona a desire to reach out and connect with other people as we were staying at home and to you know go beyond my own boundaries where i am in japan and uh find out what other people are doing and promote their good work um, and then I've now done 400 interviews. Wow. So you might have a few sequels uh, to this book. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, um, I'm getting that question. And, and even, you know, I'm certainly, you know, keeping that door open. You know, I, I do want a little uh, uh, break. It's, as wonderful as this was, you always need a break after, you know, such a project. Um, so, um yeah, but I'm definitely keeping that door open because I know this is really just yeah scratching the surface. There's uh, so many more interesting people out there. You know, there's there's many chapters I couldn't include. You know, there were there were no bad proposals. You know, there were <laughs> sometimes as an editor you want you want a kind of bad proposal oddly to come in so you, you can make an easy decision. But but you know even the ones I couldn't accept were all you know perfectly good. It was just a matter of of, of uh, what fit in there. So, so yeah, I'm keeping that door open. So um, if people think they have a interesting story to tell, they can always uh, contact me. And um, I can't say it'll happen right away, but again, the door is open. And uh, what we're really um, excited about the possibility of is um, a Japanese version, because um, that's the question. I think more than are you making another book, uh, the question I'm getting more is, will there be a Japanese version? Because, you know, a lot of people in the book want to show their chapter to their Japanese friends, but they a lot of them don't have the English level to, you know, to read this type of book. So uh, there's no definite leads on that yet, but but it's something we're working on. Um, and I really think, yeah, this will be good to, um, you know, especially at this time, again, during COVID, where it's so controversial to let foreigners back in and and these old, you know, stereotypes to come back, start coming back. So I, I think this book in Japanese could also, it's not just interesting, but also could dispel stereotypes, you know, the, that, you know, the old stereotype that if too many foreigners live in Japan, traditional Japanese culture will decline, you know, or disappear, which if you read this book, you see it's, the exact opposite so yeah uh there's so many wonderful stories so many different themes and i think there is that need for uh, long-term residents to share their stories more because even in this series as well we found so many long-term uh, residents 
who are so invested in Japanese culture and traditions and uh, bringing back old things from history and telling stories as they do tours and travel. And you've got uh, examples of all of this in in your book. It's wonderful. Uh, let me just give a shout out to some people in the book who I've also interviewed. Uh, you talked with Linda Ding, who uh, has a chapter all about kamikatsu, which I want to talk to you a little bit more in a little while. Uh, you had uh, Wendy Bigler, who actually sent me the, the book, and she talks about her love of Japanese houses and the old starting the Minka Summit as well, uh, which I was able to go to, which was wonderful. Uh, Rebecca Ottawa amazing writer about her house and being accepted by her house and her community and raising a family. Uh, Victoria, uh, who talked to uh, Victoria Yoshimura, who talked about being a, a Japanese Buddhist priest in Kyushu. It's just amazing variety of stories. And one of my first interviews uh, was with Karen Hill Anson, and she's the first chapter in yeah. your book. The, uh, talking about calligraphy and her her also acceptance into community and an old house and raising a family. Um, so many wonderful uh, stories there, but I want to start with yours, John. Okay. <laughs> not not so, the more interesting ones that you just mentioned? Oh, come on. Yours is really interesting, too. Um, and you're new to this show, so I want to introduce about you. Uh, you talk about growing up as an army brat and your father being very enthusiastic about moving around and uh, you were a bit skeptical and you were always using humor as your way to diffuse situations and be resilient and get along. And you've also used humor uh, in your teaching career. That's been a real focus of your research and your teaching, right? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, I just want to shout out uh, one of your books, Bridging the Humor Barrier. And I noticed you've also written articles about using humor to talk about social issues. Do you yes. want to talk about that just for a minute? Yeah. So um, now, I, now I feel pressure to use humor on the show, but um, I'll leave that to you. But um, <laughs> so... So start with the humor and social issues topic. Yeah, um, I think that's one of the big um, misconceptions about um, humor and language teaching is is that it's it's just for a laugh. It it doesn't have value beyond just the humor. And um, and as I talk about this, also I need to shout out. Um, I don't have his picture to pop up, but my colleague uh, Caleb Pritchard. Uh, yeah, you can see uh, my co-editor on this volume uh, at Okayama University. And um, yeah, he's just helped me do some amazing work. Um, and uh, we, we've, we're in the end of our second uh, Kaken grant now about humor. Um, but just with the social issues, yeah, I just thought, again, if you go beyond the humor, um, there's so much there. And I think a lot of this started with a first um, humor failure. And I think a lot of a lot of language teachers do avoid humor um, because of an early failure, and it's very easy for this failure. and And my my um, experience was this was uh, the first time I used an episode of The Simpsons, uh, and I was working with really enthusiastic, pretty 
decent level students. So I really wanted to give them something different on like a Friday afternoon class. So I, I thought this was going to be great. And, you know, they'd be all laughter and, and you know, um, they'd carry me out on their shoulders and um, uh, but just silence, you know, that they just um, really good students, quite good English levels, um, very enthusiastic, but just the, the humor was over, you know, most of their heads. Um, so that really made me pause and think again, I didn't really have a, a goal for this humor. Um, I just wanted them to laugh, which is a good goal in itself. But, but from that, um, looking more closely at the Simpsons, I thought, you know, to make up, to make it more content based or make a connection with the lesson, you know, so much of the Simpsons does touch on uh, social issues. And I kind of was comparing that with, say, Sazai-san in Japan, where Sazai-san you have, well, with The Simpsons, you have the longest running animated series in the history of American television, and then Sazai-san, the longest running animated series in the world. Um, but but they're quite different where, you know, the Sazai-san is much more family entertainment. And even Matt Groening, the creator, creator of The Simpsons, once infam infamously said, you know, I, I wouldn't want my own children to watch my show because <laughs> it, it is more mature. Um, but just getting back from a pedagogical standpoint, I just found that um, if I could, you know, connect this humor with some social issues, also do some uh, reading about that, um, it, it would it would give a bit more of a, um, you know, focus to the lesson. And um, so just one thing I've had a lot of um, good lessons with, with, uh, with the topic of, of homophobia. And um, there is an episode many years ago when The Simpsons was still funny, <laughs> um, but there was an episode where Homer is afraid that, um, you know, Bart was, was turning gay. And, um, you know, on the one hand, it looks like this awful show that's giving stereotypes about homosexuality, but you know, if you look more deeply, it's it's completely opposite that the show was was attacking uh, homophobia, and um, my students really uh, caught that, and I thought this was a great way to show them that because we don't get that um, as much in Japan, uh, the humor tends to be a bit more zany and wholesome. Uh, not really as much connected to social issues. So especially my students who were interested in study abroad, I, I want them to see how, you know, humor can also be connected to those social issues. And uh, what I compared this, this is going back um, more than 15 years, but do you remember uh, the, the TV character in Japan, HG, hard gay? So um, it was just we were all shocked that this was on American, uh, uh, Japanese TV. It was, uh, uh, the, the man's name is Razor Ramon, I believe. He was a, a comedian and, and pro wrestler, but he was just wearing these outrageous, you know, leather outfits that were just, you know, this is the stereotype right here. And um, I, I compared that, you know, and, and, I was just really um, pleased that my students could catch that and say, you know, we're, we're Japanese and this is on Japanese TV, but but we don't approve of this either. I mean, it seems like 
this guy is just making fun and making stereotypes about about homosexuality whereas we could see with the simpsons that they're you know exposing that they're they're criticizing uh, homophobia so that was just an early uh a gateway into the connection with humor and social issues. So I, I think it's very important, again, especially for students who want to study abroad to, to just have, because especially when it's connected to social issues, there's much more risk of, of the humor being misunderstood, causing offense. So I, I eat whether or not they approve of it, appreciate it, find it funny. I think it's very important for my Japanese learners to be aware of how some countries in the world make this connection with with uh, stereo with um excuse me social issues and humor. Yeah, um, I think that's a really relevant point as well to prepare students before they study abroad. Uh, you you had one uh, research article. Uh, Sarcasm is so easy to learn. I love that title. Um, so sarcasm is is often very difficult to understand for second language learners, um, but definitely a part of normal communication in English. Um, so that's another part of humor that you dove into with your students. Uh, they seem to get sarcasm okay after these lessons. What do you think? Yeah, they improved. Um, sarcasm is one of the, going back to humor failure, um, a lot of teachers kind of say, uh, I wouldn't touch sarcasm in, in, in the classroom. It's, it's, it can't be taught. So we were really inspired by that and thought, well, what are you really, you know, trying to teach? And, um, the model we use in our book, which, which we modified from, um, I don't want to just talk about my own books, but another great resource is uh, here, Humor in the Classroom by uh, Nancy Bell and Ann Pomerantz, who um, have just done so much great work with humor. Um, but again, going back to my point of needing, needing a goal with the humor and being about more than humor. Um, so our kind of um, model in this book was, there's kind of four stages um, to use with humor in the classroom. And, and first is just recognition, uh, just to recognize or detect that it's a joke. And that might seem so simplistic, but it's not because, you know, even, even people of the same language speaking together have to check with each other sometimes, you know, it, are, are, are you being sarcastic? Are you, are you joking? Um, so one is just the recognition. And then two would be the, um, the comprehension. Or, or understanding. So uh, not just know that a joke is being made, but also understand the intent or true meaning. And then the third would be response. So you need, you know, in communication to, and that could be a positive or negative response, just, just to appreciate the humor, haha, that's funny. Or to say that's not funny, uh, which which I hear a lot, or um, or even just to, to um, use your communication strategies and, and again ask, are you joking? What do you mean? Is completely fine. And then the fourth one um, would be the self-production of humor too. So being able to produce your own humor in the target language. And, and you don't need, we're not saying that every time you teach about humor in the classroom, it's a progression from one to four. Sometimes you might only be teaching one and two, uh, recognition and understanding. And that's kind of what we, we've done with um, sarcasm with our studies is just starting from there. Um, 
we don't want to create sarcastic students. <laughs> the world doesn't need more sarcastic people. And um, so we don't want Japanese people, you know, going to the States and saying, oh, the sushi here is so authentic, you know, and, and making fun of that. But, but it's very important. It's so much a part of um, daily communication that, that they at least need to get it. And um, as an English teacher, um, you know, for the past 20, 30 years, whenever I'm back home, I'm always kind of still in teacher mode and putting myself in my students' shoes. And like, if they encountered this situation or this situation, you know, could they understand it? How would they, you know, how would they react here? And, and I found that with sarcasm, um, I remember being in, uh, we were in, in Oregon for a conference and we, we took the bus and uh, the bus was like, there was like five people on a, like a 100 seat bus. Um, so, you know, less than 10% capacity and we're just about to leave and the driver turns around and looks at us and shouts out, okay, no fighting over the seats. <laughs> and um, I'm, I'm just trying to picture, you know, my students would probably know all those words, but but would they, would they you know, get kind of get this joke and do they feel like they need to respond to that? So, uh, yeah, it, it's just so much ingrained in our culture. So, again, um, we're not teaching our students to be sarcastic, but I think at least being able to detect and understand whether or not they appreciate it is another matter, but just simple detection and comprehension can go a long way in, in you know, communication skills. Definitely. I love that example. And it immediately reminded me of uh, the confusion a lot of people have when they first come to Japan or visit Japan and people shout at them, Irashai, when they come into the, the shop. And then people are like, how do I respond to that? Right. Do, I, do I say thank you or do you know, arigato or do I say it back? Irashai, you know? And um, I, it's something you have to learn, right? So even if you don't get the joke, or get the sarcasm. If you realize it is a joke or it is sarcasm, even just to smile or right, to right, nod right. that you appreciate that they've made an effort, uh, that's pretty much a good reaction, right? Exactly. Yeah. So that's that's part of it. You know, just a smile, a little laugh is is a reaction too. Yeah. Um, I love, let's go back to your story a little bit. So you uh, traveled around America to different states, and then you, uh, later on, you just came to Japan, even without a job. I love that story. The good old and days. <laughs> this is before Google. Uh, you said your Google was Lonely Planet. I love that. Um, and how you would get directions for job interviews over the phone and then scribble it down and then go try to challenge the Tokyo subway system, right? <laughs> Talk about, yeah, pure half exhilaration, half horror, you know, it was just, especially, I, I'm a small town boy originally, so uh, yeah. <laughs> and then you, uh, later on, you went back to the States and then you joined uh, SHIP, organization uh, to bring people around the world. This really reminded me of like the peace uh, cruise, peace boat. Peace boat, yeah. Experience, right? Can yeah. you tell us a bit about that experience? Yeah, I'm glad you said that because the number one question I get about this experience is, oh, that's the peace boat, right? <laughs> because we see these 
peace boat signs plastered, you know, all over Japan for the past 20 or 30 years. Um, but this is a completely separate cult program called the uh, Ship for World Youth, or the uh, Seikai Seina no Fune in Japanese. And um, just um, to explain what that is and the difference, um, I, I haven't been on the peace boat, but from what, yay, okay. What I know about the peace boat is it's, um, it's, a, it's a longer program, um, goes to many more countries, but also much more uh, expensive. And I think it's mostly Japanese people um, of all ages. And I think they may have um, some foreign English teachers, etc. because um, I do know some people who have worked for this program. Um, but I don't know a lot of, you know, what they do besides travel. Whereas the Ship for World Youth is, uh, it's sponsored by the cabinet office, the Naikakufu of Japan, but then also organized by another uh, wonderful organization called um, IYEO, the International Youth Exchange Organization. Um, so what they do is roughly 120 Japanese participants join, and then they have a rotating group of uh, countries in the world, generally 10 or 12 countries and about about 10 or 12 delegates each and they are welcome to japan and then they stay on the ship together with the japanese participants for in uh when i did it my first one was the ship for world youth 14 which goes back to 2001 uh so now we're somewhere in the 30s um so i think we had about 45 days um yeah but just um and the amazing thing, as I say in my chapter, is uh, it's completely free. The um, It's sponsored by the Japanese, by, again, by the um, um, by the Japanese government, um, the cabinet office, excuse me. And they, they fund, as part of international exchange, they fund the foreign participants, um, except for things like maybe uh, healthcare, etc. Um, and then even the Japanese participants, uh, Japanese participants do pay, but I want to say it's, it's, it's quite reasonable for, um, for the experience they get, uh, you know, uh, five to six weeks at sea, uh, three meals a day, uh, et cetera. So just an amazing, yeah. And you've seen the uh, pictures there. So just an amazing, amazing experience. And you said, uh, it's, it's had a very long effect on your career. Um, that recently you're adding some lectures from people you've met on that experience um, as a part of your SDG lectures. Is that right? Right. Um, yes, some SDG, some other topics um, started more as just any type of, say, international exchange or international topics. Um, but then now, um, you know, my university, Okayam University, is um, is very much promoting the SDGs. So we also have um, uh, some people um, talking about that. So just, yeah, looking at the future, I, I'm in the process. And this is, uh, as I say in my chapter, one of the amazing things about this program is just what an amazing network it has given me, both, both here in Japan and internationally. So uh, last year or two years ago, I had a, um, uh, man, Futoshi Sato. Do you have the picture of the advisors again on the deck? There was about, um, 
uh, the other one. Was there another one? Yeah, this one. So, yeah, the man on the left, uh, Futoshi Sato, is just this uh, amazing fellow advisor. Um, focus on him. This is the picture with my eyes closed from the sun. But uh, the great man on the left on the camera, Futoshi Sato. So he was a fellow advisor on the program. He's also been a, worked on the Peace Boat several times. Um, but he uh, he has his own farm in, in Saitama Prefecture. Um, so he's very much into sustainable living. And I, I hadn't spoken with him in years because um, this picture is SWI 16, so roughly 2004. And uh, he, he spoke to my students about uh, sustainability, uh, and that was great. And then I was talking to him more, and he said, oh, I, I met these two, you know, young, as opposed to me and him, young SWIRES, uh, Ship for World Youth Earth SWIRES, um, who I was very impressed with. So if you need speakers in the future. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm speaking with them now for fall lectures. Um, one works uh, with marine conservation. Um, so she's gonna be talking about that. And then another will be speaking about uh, refugees, which is just, you know, great, great timing. Uh, I, I think very optimistic timing where it seems like, it seems like Japan is finally slightly more uh, embracing accepting refugees with the with the Ukraine situation and, and a lot of my students are interested in that topic so um, yeah so those are two things coming up yeah wonderful uh, those two issues of course social impact issues the issues about people and quality of life are as important and very connected to planet issues and environmentalism as well as making income and economic uh, you know, support. Um, those three people, planet, profit are things that I often talk about. And it's so nice to see that you have that diverse view as well, the, the diverse uh, people and planet, not just planet or people. Um, I think that's really important for education. A lot of people don't quite understand what is sustainability, how it's so far reaching into so many different topics, right? Right, right. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about Kamikatsu because Great. we share a deep love of Kamikatsu. <laughs> and uh, like we mentioned, one of your chapters is written by one of the founders of Inau, Inau, Inau. Uh, in Kamikatsu, and you did that experience for two months. Uh, tell me about it. Yeah, um, that had been um, on my radar for a while. Um, so maybe around uh, 2015, uh, I saw a wonderful Pechikucha talk in uh, Nishinomiya uh, by um, Sakano Akira, who was, who was also one of the main proponents of uh, zero waste in Kamikatsu. Um, so I, I kept in touch with her, and and she also came and spoke to our students um, a few years ago. Um, so Kami Katsu had always been uh, kind of on my radar, and there's a great uh, YouTube video um, about their um, recycling program and how you know at the time it was at, in that video. I think it was 33 categories of garbage separation, and I I think they're up to well over 40 by now. Um, yeah. So, when I visited, they were at 60. 60, okay, there you go. Most recently, it was back to 45. 
Um, okay. You mentioned 45 in your Pechikuja talk as well, right? Okay, so I think when I was there, which is um, two summers ago, um, yeah, so it worked out um, wonderfully that, um, again, I'd always kind of had this town on my radar and thought it would be great to visit. And then, um, and yeah, you can see why that one of my favorite pictures um, of the rice terraces there. So I'm pretty much every summer I'm, I'm home for a long time in the States, uh, you know, escaping this humidity and et cetera. So, uh, you know, the first summer of COVID, I, I, I couldn't go anywhere. And, um, and I'm thinking, well, if it's safe, if it's okay to, to travel domestically, I'm kind of looking for something. And then just very serendipitously, this, this ad came up on Facebook, still the only, only good Facebook ad I've ever seen. Uh, but, and I, I, I kind of um, just looked into it and saw it and it, it worked out uh, perfectly and, and did a little Zoom talk with uh, Linda, um, Linda Ding, the co-founder of the Eno program. And um, yeah, was able to work that out. Um, yeah, and- You were inspired also um, by The Abundance of Less, one of my favorite books, um, which features some people from Kamikatsu and that area and how they're living uh, very sustainable lives, but very simple lives. And going back to real basics, what do you need to be happy? Um, and you met one of the main characters of that book as part of your program, right? Right, right, right. So, um, yeah, that's the amazing, wonderful thing about this program is it's not, you know, you're not just looking around and observing, um, you know, as much as possible. They, uh, Linda um, and um, Azimasan and now Akana is the also the new um, uh, part of the team there. Um, just do an amazing job to get you involved in the village. And yeah, the, the amazing thing with that book is, um, you know, I read it years ago um, and I, I've had it on my shelf and I, I, I really enjoyed it. And I just, I never remembered, I've never made that connection that yeah, two or three of those people have these roots in Kamikatsu. So uh, the, I think I might not have realized that until I arrived in Kamikatsu and then got to the share house and there was a copy of the book on the table because because Linda, of course, was heavily influenced by that book as well. And then and then I started looking through and like, oh, they're in Kamikatsu. So and and within that week, I was meeting uh, two of those people and, you know, spending full days with them. Um, so, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, the woman, uh, the woman on the right as well is is one of the co-founders. Um, with Azuma-san's uh, mother, I believe, of the original, you know, zero waste waste movement movement, and the guy um, uh, Kiyohara-san uh, in the picture as well. I, I always remember his name because it's the baseball player. But uh, this is the good the good Kiyohara-san because the other Kiyohara-san played for the Giants. Um, but I, I, I saw him in this YouTube video, which I'd shown my students for years. So it was it was. You know, again, a great thing in this program that I was actually there uh, two days, you know, volunteering side by side with him and and getting his his personal story. Um, so yeah, quite an amazing program. Wow. Uh, another amazing how it all kind of came together is um, 
two of these people also have a, a deep love of Nepal, which is another one of my loves. And um, so it was amazing to, to talk to them about traveling to Nepal in the 70s or 80s. Um, if you have that picture again of, of Nakamura-san and his stove, if you could pop. Yeah, this, I mean, what an amazing guy. Um, this is a, a Nepalese-style stove. And from his travels in Nepal, he like remembered and diagrammed this and came back to Japan and built it by hand. So, you know, what, what an amazing, you know, national treasure, you know, nestled in the mountains of Kamikatsu. So yeah, I, I spent a wonderful day with him in his, you know, sustainable house, um, eating, talking, doing art. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, farewell there. So beautiful. Uh, such a wonderful story. He has right. Exactly. Um, I also spent the day with him uh, many years ago when I visited Kamikatsu, and there were no vegan vegetarian options. And I've been a vegan vegetarian for a long time, so that's actually how I was introduced to him because everybody else in town was like, "We don't know what to feed you, but we know that Nakamura-san he's a vegan because wow. that's just the simplest, most sustainable way to live. So he'll make you lunch." So I went up and I spent the day with him. He made me all this beautiful Nepalese spicy curry with chickpeas and everything. Absolutely amazing. And then rice, which is grown outside. All the vegetables he added were right outside his door from other farmers. Um, so it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. I'm sure you had as well. Now you also spent time with Azuma-san, who's one of the co-founders Really, it was her mom that started the movement, yeah. and she continued that momentum. Uh, she built the beautiful Cafe Polestar, which is one of the central uh, eateries and cafes behind the movement there. Uh, it's one of the first places you'll see in Kamikatsu that has the stickers uh, where they're trying to be so transparent about the good work that they're doing for zero waste and how they're putting it into action. So a bit easier to understand than SDGs. This is exactly what they're doing. Uh, I really appreciate right, right, right. part of the transparency. Uh, you were working in the cafe as well? Yeah, I volunteered two or three days there as well. So, I mean, this was just so fantastic, yeah, to, to kind of get out of my comfort zone and, and do things I haven't done in, you know, decades since back when I was a college student. So, um, yeah, and I, I just um, obviously a lack of public transportation in in Kamikatsu, but but I would make the hour hour and a half walk to to the cafe all, almost daily because it's just it's just a beautiful walk there. And then a, a lot of um, if could you put the picture of the cafe back up there? Um, the one is there one showing the counter maybe. Yeah, this one. Um, so if you, I mean, a lot of my shopping was done there as well because you um, uh, you buy a lot of your bulk goods. So so coffee beans and rice, etc. And and there's no kind of packaging. So you just have, you know, your Tupperware you use from the um, from the share house and um, and you know go up there and, and buy in bulk. So uh, yeah, that was again just seeing everything in action. So quite a amazing place, amazing program. Yeah. Uh, also at the recycling center where you're working, I love this part. You think 
all recycle centers should always have a dog, like a mascot. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think I said every Pecha Kucha presentation needs a random picture of a dog. Huh? Well, I, I think uh, everything. This, yeah. This interview as well. So we have our dog there. So I know, you're a, I know you're a cat lover, but hopefully a dog. Oh, no, I, I love all animals. Um, yeah. And at the same center, you did point out also about the Kudu Kudu shop. Um, there, there are two types of kudu kudu shops. I always suggest that they change the names to make it a little bit easier. Um, but one is a workshop where they get some local people to upcycle some of the waste materials, like the beautiful koi banners yeah. um, that they hang in the valley, make it into jackets and bags and other products. Um, but this kudu kudu shop that you're talking about at the recycle center is something freely that you can take or leave things and they say that they have an equal number an equal weight of people leaving and taking every year in the community it's such a example of sustainable success i think right 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 and yeah another thing i love um appreciate about kamikatsu is um oh good yeah welcome z for uh Came in for the Kamikatsu talk. Okay. Uh, do you have the picture with me and Asuma-san holding the, the leaves there? Um, if you could pop that up again. Do you remember what these are called? It's not maple leaf, not momiji. No, no. I can't remember the Japanese name. And But yeah. you do talk about the leaf business, which is right, right. Really Iro, amazing. So, Irodori, yeah. yeah okay. So that's another one of because kamikatsu, like a lot of these villages, is you know aging or shall we say super aging. So th this is really a great from from long ago. This is a great way they've um, managed to you know to give opportunities to the older generation in kamikatsu. So so most of this gathering and selling selling of these irodori are done um, you know by the older women. So it's it's. Um, just a great way to stay active and yeah they're they're very ambitious very aggressive aggressive in a good way about about their business you know cell phones going and and checking the market price and and they're you know they're sending these across japan to use as as decorations in japanese cooking so uh yeah just an inspiring uh a little yeah. uh, visit every every time i see a bento with a plastic leaf I always think they need to get in touch with kamikatsu. They need kamikatsu leaves. And I always give it as an example in consulting. Can you imagine making money off of leaves off of your local trees? What an innovative, amazing entrepreneur idea. Uh, did you visit the hotel, the main hotel, the onsen hotel, where you can do the walking tour of the leaf business behind? That's so interesting. Yeah, I, I spent a lot of time in that onsen, but I didn't. Uh, I didn't do the actual walking tour of that. But um, yeah, you know, so he he introduced um, like they have little areas where they're showing how they grow the leaves, which are most popular, sending around the country. Uh, he actually said the colorful, mottled, uh, different colors of the persimmon leaf actually got the most money, and he showed us. Uh, different leaves like lotus leaves, beautiful big ones, um, and then edible leaves like shiso and things like that. So, yeah, fantastic. Yeah, so hopefully uh, we'll see more and more of this because, um, you know, that that is a 
feature of, of Japanese culture, the way to, to kind of minimize and but but we need again these ways to um, another good example of that um, going going back to my textbook that inspired me working in Japan. Um, we included uh, two Japanese people in here because we wanted to see Japanese people who are using English and uh, how it helps their career. And one guy we were lucky to get, uh, Shigeharu Asagiri, Shigeharu Asagiri. He is the uh, uh, president of uh, Kuwaito Beer, um, as he calls it, one of the one of the biggest small breweries in Japan. Uh, um, and one of their, their kind of flagship brand is one made of, of sweet potatoes. And as you do know, though, um, you know, Japanese consumers can be very uh, demanding about the, say, size and shape of their produce. So, you know, he found these sweet potatoes uh, from Saitama that were that were too small to kind of be used in, in regular cooking or to sell. So he managed to to use these to make his beer. And um, so it's just a great a, a great example like these leaves of, of, you know, giving value to something that that seemed to have no value. That was, you know, the great expression of multi and I, you know, like, you know, don't don't waste it, use it. So yeah. uh, that's, that's Absolutely. another thing. Plus, in Kamikatsu, speaking of beer, uh, you have two great craft breweries, uh, the Rise and Win and the Stonewall Hill. And they also are really great uh, building up the community. They have that beautiful design, the reuse of all the old doors and windows as you come into Kamikatsu. They're reusing an old factory up the hill for the second brewery. They reuse a lot of old citrus peels in different brews that they make. You can take your own bottle and refill, just like the French wineries. Yeah. Um, so there's so many great initiatives uh, to experience there. It sounds like uh, Z has joined. He wants to go and spend some time in Kamikatsu. You definitely should, Z. It's a great place to go and spend time. Like, don't, don't plan on a day trip. That would be a waste. Because it takes time to get there, right? Right, and that—that's what I loved about that program. Is they said, you know, why waste your time coming all the way here for one day? So uh, I can't. Re I think my program might have been two weeks, or it might be down to ten day, ten to fourteen days. But but again, just um, yeah, Japan's opening little by little. Z. So uh, we hope you can get here uh, as soon as possible. And also, you know, Joy, I'm glad you mentioned the brewery because I was afraid I was afraid I would bring that up, and then all my friends would be like, "Oh, Yapati, John, turn the turn the uh, conversation to beer." But um, yeah, another another uh, great thing there. Um, yeah, and you mentioned the refillable bottles, um, which that that's although we have the craft beer boom in Japan as well, they're kind of missing the the growler, um, what we call them in the states, growler culture, where you can fill and refill your own bottle and and that's that's what i used um in uh, when i stayed in kamikatsu the 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 um share house had a, a growler as well which i um you know refilled while i was there once maybe twice <laughs> yeah i always i take my growler uh everywhere even even to craft breweries in hiroshima or other areas of japan i take my kamikatsu growler 
if I'm going to a local brewery and I ask them to fill it up and you know what, usually craft breweries, they're happy to do it. Oh, they, okay. Okay. They're yeah. happy to fill up from their keg. So it's, it's great. A great, if you love beer, it's a great resource. <laughs> yeah. Cause I think the, the kind of spirit of, of craft brewmanship or, um, is kind of universal. So they, e even if they're, they don't have the tradition in Japan, they're, they're probably aware of it and, and happy to, so I'm happy to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, one of the other stories uh, who I've had the chance to interview is Ted Taylor and yeah. his, his talk uh, in your book, uh, his talk on my show, and then in your book about his love of Japanese culture and tradition and music. And it seems like you have some very similar, uh, you guys are kindred spirits with your love of travel and love of music. Is that right? Yeah. Um, and love of hiking where uh, we've been for some hikes um, and music as as we like to say we like we like both kinds of music uh the grateful dead and fish so um but but it goes beyond that but um i think ted's um what i loved about when this book was coming together is is the little themes that you know i thought even if i have two chapters about sumo for example you know if they have a different perspective uh, why not use them both? So, um, so we did have a little section on walking and hiking, and so Ted's was in there. But, um, but I think another good thing about Ted's was um, kind of how he was forced to re-explore Kyoto during COVID because he 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 has worked as a as a kind of travel guide in Japan and and for foreign guests, so we obviously couldn't do that. So we you know, just talks about seeing Kyoto on foot, which I, you know, I think is a great lesson to teach, you know, foreign travelers is one of the best ways to see foreign cities is on foot. So it's, uh, it's, it's definitely a very creative chapter and just gets these little nuggets of, of Kyoto that you, you know, wouldn't get in kind of the, you know, 10 must do, 10 must see things in Kyoto type of thing. So yeah, that was a great perspective. Yeah, I think that's so important, uh, especially now when we have less tourists and you can explore uh, some of the more famous sites as well with less crowds. But that whole idea that exploring your usual everyday views, but try to look at it with fresh eyes, try to appreciate it uh, for things you may not have noticed before. Um, I love that about uh, Ted's article in your in your book, but so many others. Um, there's so many others that I wanted to explore. I noticed behind you, you've got the Hanshin Tigers. You have some somebody writing about their love of baseball. Uh, you've got uh, uh, some a writer talking about Okinawa's dance. I Asa, love yeah, Okinawa, Asa, right? yeah, so so many fantastic um, articles and stories in here, and it really is, like you said, sharing your passion for Japan. Um, from many varied perspectives. I really, I do hope you can get it translated into Japanese. I think that'd be very popular. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you did notice the Hanshin tag. I, I try to put some little Easter eggs there for the viewers, but um, that is one of my passions. But I, I found someone with, with um, much... Um, much better attributes to someone who's done much more with his with his fandom that uh, could write a much better chapter in, in Trevor um, Ray Chura, and that was that was great. And... 
Um, are there any stories in particular that you were really surprised by or really stood out as something you hadn't considered before? Yeah, I think um, what was very helpful is I think I went into the kind of call for proposals with a bit too a bit too rigid of, a, of an idea of um, so I wanted this to be something very traditionally Japanese. I wanted it to be a kind of a turning point for you. But then um, as I started getting some questions from possible contributors that really helped me to see the the possibility so one of that was um you know someone asked can japanese people contribute and i was kind of surprised at first like well no it's it's a book about foreign perspectives of japan but but then i thought well on the other hand you know especially if we have um a kind of global japanese or returnees um so from that question i i really did decide to open it up. And, and fortunately, I did get one um, between chapter 20 and 25 or so, uh, Haru Yamada, who, who currently lives in England. And um, so I, I thought that would be great to, um, you know, have kind of the same with our working in Japan book, where we're like, well, we should also have some Japanese people to, to show our students how Japanese people use English. So I thought, you know, I, I thought this was a great chapter by Yamada-san to uh, shed light on on um, the returnee issue to Japan, which which I I hope is is improving. But I know for her generation, you know, to be a returnee, to live overseas and come back to Japan, you know, it, it's something that should be an asset. But it was it was in her time at least, and possibly, unfortunately, to some extent, still today you know, it was, it was quite, you know, traumatic for her. She was quite the, the outcast. Um, and even her teacher, you know, she tells some horrible stories in the chapter about, you know, her teacher basically mocking her, uh, for, for living overseas and, 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 and criticizing her English because she had to learn to speak English in the say Japanese way. So, so I thought that could come up where, you know, I think, say even for Japanese people, especially like returnees, where it, it might take them time to to find a, a passion for their own culture, to find something they appreciate. And in Haru-san's um, experience, it was um, not just tennis, but her tennis coach's way of teaching tennis, which um, um, was focused much more on listening. And that that's Haru's um, big, kind of research area now is, is listening skills and something she learned to really appreciate about, you know, her, her own Japanese culture is the different listening skills um, and listening strategies. Um, so, so that was a bit of a surprising one um, in, in a very good way. And I, I hope to get maybe more of that, more Japanese or, or say mixed roots people who, you know, sometimes have the struggle of Kind of choosing between a culture and then they they sometimes struggle with their japanese identity um until they find something uh to embrace about about you know that part of their their heritage um maybe another surprising one was again because originally i was kind of thinking purely japanese culture but then 
when you think about what is that really, you know, because because you know, base baseball is not Japanese, but the the approach to baseball um, is is very Japanese. So um, so that wasn't much of a stretch with with Trevor's chapter. But then I had I had um, Simon Bibby uh, from England asked me a question about, well, what about chess? And I was like, chess, you know, I was like, what, what do they play chess at all in Japan? And then, uh, but I was intrigued and, and he had a lot of credibility with the chapter because as you'll read, he actually uh, represented uh, chess, uh, represented Japan in the world chess championships. So it's one of these things where the passion kind of became a bit irrelevant you know like it, it didn't have to be it didn't matter how japanese it was if you're experiencing it and following it in japan and using that to acculturate to assimilate to interact with japanese people then it becomes your your japanese passion your japanese experience uh so simon was another uh, good surprising chapter and, and and with some humor he's he's got a great story where when he uh the first time he went to the chess championships, he had like two or three staff or judges try make him move. Like, excuse me, sir, you're you're sitting in the wrong chair. This is this is for Japan. So so it brought up brought up these great things about identity. You know, what does it mean to be Japanese? What does it mean to represent Japan? Um, where if we watch the Olympics now, it an amazing number of of mixed roots athletes representing Japan. And I think, you know, a majority of Japanese, you know, support them wholeheartedly, I would like to think so. Um, yeah, so we saw that in, in Simon's chapter as well, another surprising one. Can I ask you, was there any, um, as a reader, were, were there any that jumped out as you is like, I didn't, uh, I didn't, I didn't expect that. <laughs> I, I have to, I have to say it was the Okinawa, the Sasa dance. Asa dance, uh, her passion, her passion for the dance, and, yeah, yeah. and then moving away from Okinawa, but seeing it performed and tears to her yeah, eyes yeah, yeah, as yeah. she watched it, and I, I identify with that on so many levels because there's so many parts of Japanese culture that I, as a long-term resident, am cheering for, you know? And if I see it outside of its normal place, if I visit Hawaii or something, I feel really emotional and happy and enthusiastic about that. And and so I think your book is is displaying that, that diversity and inclusion of international residents who have really become a deeply embedded part of Japan without being Japanese. Like what is Japanese? Like what you said, right? So it's it's a wonderful book. Thank you so much, John. Yeah. Could I touch on that chapter as well? Um so, yeah, I, I meant to bring that up before when I was talking about having similar topics. So I had this proposal about uh Tycho by um um Daniel Lilly from New Zealand, um, which I very much liked. And then I got this other proposal about Asa, which is roughly a Jap uh, Okinawan version of, of taiko drumming, but also with dancing. And I was like, mm, well, can I really use both of these? And they're both great. And then, and then I thought, well, why not? I mean, this this helps to show the diversity of Japan because I think around the world, so many people now do know taiko, but how many people know Asa? 
So I thought that was great. Um, and another thing, another thing I love about uh, Judy, Judy Kambada's chapter about Asa is, again, with Okinawa, you know, you have this, you know, not always a great relationship with the military community and the local community and, and a lot of controversies. Um, but I thought it's great how she, she found something that helped her enter that community and just so wholeheartedly and so emotionally and and same with you once i started reading her proposal which started with a story about crying i'm like oh yeah i gotta include this because this is this is what this book is about that that there's you know it, it's you know a non-japanese in another part of japan feeling nostalgic about japan just it, it there was just so much going on there in a wonderful way so yeah another both of those chapters are fantastic yeah. Yeah, and the underlining theme, I think, of acceptance, um, that we might look like we don't belong, but actually so many of the stories have so many strong themes of being accepted, being embraced by Japanese community and Japanese people. And I, I find that so encouraging and wonderful about this book. So you've done a great job. Thank you. And yeah, that's, that's something I really mention in the introduction because you know, when you look at one of the models of culture shock and, and acculturation, um, they call stage four acceptance. But I think that's only half the story because because you can accept your new culture. But but do they accept you? That's equally or even more important. Um, so I think that really came through in a lot of these stories. And again, when I was thinking of possible themes for a book, that's that's one thing that came up like what what how can you be accepted in japan and i think sharing this this passion is is one way and and going back to the um taiko chapter you know daniel lily talks about how once he got in with this this group of of taiko performers who were all kind of beginners and he's he kind of said you know my nationality was irrelevant after a while you know once you know we were just people in the same circle or club trying to learn taiko uh looking for something different in our lives and and he really shows in that chapter how you get into the uchi you know the the inside in japan and i think again sharing a passion you know i i'm going to watch my hunching tigers tonight and and they they they've turned my hair gray with their performance and they've broken my heart but as far as being accepted in Japan, you know, when I go tonight, you know, I, I'm just another fan, you know, sharing this, this heartbreak and it, it is a, you know, community. And I think, again, the, the Japanese fans appreciate that they, they, they really get a kick out of seeing foreign residents who have also become Tigers fans. So win or lose tonight, I can. Uh... <laughs> That's fantastic. That's a great, great way to be a part of, of the group. I love that. Uh, we also have serious carp fence in Hiroshima as well. Yeah. 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 We won't get into I, that. But, uh, rivals with you guys, I'm afraid. Yeah. yeah we're, and, and we haven't beat you this year. So um, you're, and we're playing tonight. You're, you're destroying us. Yeah. So. Oh yeah. I'll have to tune in. Maybe. I won't hold that against you. And uh, yeah. yeah, hopefully we, we can be rivals, so we can be friends too. Yeah. Right? Hopefully <laughs> and our Naomi don't mention that too much as well either. Yeah. 
Well, thank you so much, John. Thanks for joining. And I will put the relevant links below to all the wonderful things we talked about. And uh, Passion for Japan is available. So please pick up your copy at any good bookstore, right, John? Uh, it's only, well, the bookstore of Amazon. So it's.、Uh, It's only available on Amazon,、uh, ebook or、uh, print version in select countries Japan, US, Canada, Australia,、uh, England, and probably a few I can't remember. But、um, yeah, just search、um, on Amazon and it'll be there.、Wonderful. And if you enjoy it,、uh, don't forget to leave a nice review. Fantastic. Thank you so much, John. Thanks, Thank everyone,、you. for joining. Thank you. And,、uh, Join us again for another author interview this week. We're talking with Winifred Bird on Friday. She wrote the beautiful book, Wild Eating Wild Japan, talking about food foraging. And we talked to her last year, right when the book was published. And this is a continuation after a year. And similar to what you're doing, John, or what you intend to do, she is working almost finished on the Japanese translation. Of her book about Japan, so bringing it back to the Japanese audience. So that'll be interesting. Yeah.、Wonderful. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day. Take care. Thank you. <laughs>